So recap of last week. So last week we finished um, 1 Timothy 1. What an amazing chapter. Paul writing to Timothy. Where's Timothy? Do we remember? Where did he drop him off? What city? Ephesus, right? We talked about Ephesus. It's a mess, right? We talk about cities here that are a mess. Ephesus was really, really a mess. And Timothy's being left there like the pastor. Go run the show. This is how you're going to run the church. So this letter, past the first of the pastoral epistles, is a way for, Timothy, or excuse me, for Paul to reach to Timothy and say, this is how the church should run. Um, not that Timothy is not a good believer, not that he's not filled with the Holy Spirit and, and has that wisdom, but Paul, as a good mentor, is going to pour into him just for that, for church mentorship. So we finished that chapter, and we talked last week about fighting the good fight. So fight the good fight. We talked about what that was uh, relating to as far as running the church. And keep in mind, as, as I said a few minutes ago, this is about commands. This isn't, hey, maybe you should run the church like this. You know, this isn't orthopraxy, which is a big word of like, hey, we all run church different. You know, the church down the street this morning, they all meet in pews and they do communion a certain way. And we do it sitting in the living room on the floor and there's kids talking. That's a different orthopraxy. He's not talking about that. He's talking about doctrine. We all believe in one Jesus Christ, in one God, in one gospel, in one resurrection from the dead, and that's it. That's the gospel message. And this is what Paul is trying to get across to him. So, um, Also, he's not talking to him about some things that we're getting in the church today, like multiplying your crowd. He's not going to him trying to teach him how to be a church leader. This isn't the uh, life church uh, message of how to multiply your crowd to get people in so that you can have a rock concert and get tithes and offerings. That's not it. It's not about picking the best music to attract people. These are commands maintained to the gospel, excuse me, the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And specifically, as I said, fighting the good fight in faith and in good conscience is what Paul says at the end of that message. So doing so will keep us in the right heading and essentially prevents us from shipwrecking our faith. And we talked about that last week, how when we don't have a good conscience, when our hands leaves the rudder of our lives and we steer away, we shipwreck our faith, and then we are off the path. So we learned a little bit about church discipline last week as well. And those are tough words, really tough words. Paul sent men out of the church who were stirring up trouble. They were bringing false doctrine. If you remember, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to separate these guys from the church. He uses some really rough language. Does anybody remember what Paul says about these people, where he's going to send them to? He sends them to Satan. He sends them out to Satan. Can you imagine? I mean, those are tough words. Can you imagine with one of your friends in the church being like, look, I have talked to you about this numerous times. You keep coming here and telling people things that are incorrect. You need to go out. I'm going to send you to Satan. But remember, not sending to him so that he could be lost but sending him to Satan so that he might learn the error of his ways because we want those people back, because we want people to be saved, because that should be our heart. And we're going to actually talk about that specifically today. But remember the importance of this. We are called to care for the bride of Christ. And that was the specific part of the central message of fighting the good fight last week. And I, I really believe in that analogy that we went over that I talked about, and that is this. My bride, Carol, if I left her with you 
and you mistreated, miscared for, led her away, painted her up in a way that you shouldn't, and then gave her to the world, I would be mad with you in a way that would cause us to have some strife, right? (laughs) So now imagine you are doing that to the God who can create a universe. And you are taking his bride and painting her up and treating her poorly and leading her astray. Now imagine the the difference. You know, my wrath is, (laughs) is really nothing compared to his. When we mistreat the church, that is what we deserve. And that is why Paul wants people out of it. This is the bride of Christ. We do not mistreat her. So when we're caring for the bride of Christ, it's the utmost importance that we are fighting the good fight. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. And we're going to study verses 1 through 8 today. And you're going to find that this has a lot to do with prayer. It's centered around prayer. And if I was going to put a title on today's, I'd say lift up holy hands. And this has to do with praying, lifting up your hands, giving it all to God the Father, asking Him to hear our prayers, our petitions, our supplications, uh, laying it down for other people, but also praying for ourselves. So turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. Paul says this, First of all, then... I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. All right, well... Did you ever have one of those difficult texts in your life that you went through and you read something out of the Word of God and you were like, I don't know about this. This is kind of one of those, and you're going to see why. You can't really weasel around it or fly away out of it, but Paul's going to do that a lot throughout Timothy. And like I said, it's because it's commands. It's telling Timothy how to run the church. It's, and, and Timothy can't go, well, I've been kind of running it this way, and it's working. No, this is how you're going to run the church. This is kind of one of those... As we start out in this section, first of all, I exhort the petitions, prayers, requests, thanksgivings to be made for how many men? Which men? All men. All men, not some men, not some women, not some kids. We pray for everybody. That word everybody fits in there nicely. Um, First, does not mean that there's going to be a, a list. Paul is putting this in place of importance for public worship. Make this important. Pray for everyone. When you come to church, it is important that you pray for everyone. That's what he says, first of all. This is not going to be a list of things, first of all, second of all, third of all. The way that this is taken out of the Greek when he says first of all is make this important in church. That's kind of what it means. Make this important. Pray for everybody. So when you start corporate worship, pray for people. Pray for your community. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for the kids. That's what he's doing. He's making it important. 
And we're called to pray in numerous ways. As you see, Paul lays out four specific types of prayer here. One is petitions, which is praying for your needs, right? I'm asking God to pray for me. It's like in the Lord's Prayer where we ask the Father to provide for us. We ask Him to take away our desire to sin. So those are personal prayers. Not out of selfishness, but because we, just like our friends, also need a Savior. Prayer in general, general communication with the Lord. Uh, You've seen as we've gone through the epistles, what does Paul pray for? All things. He continues to say this throughout. Continue in prayer in all things. Common language for Paul. That means throughout the day, Father God, I'm praying for this, for this person, for this situation. I, I don't think it's selfish in any way that you have that holy language in your life where you continue to just reach to God in a way that says, I recognize who he is. He is holy and sovereign over everything. And in my daily life, I cry to him, call to him, give praise to him. Requests or intercessions. Specific prayer for others' needs is what intercession is. You get somebody in your life that needs prayer, pray for them. Pray for them. When you're sitting at the dinner table with your family and you're, I don't like to call it gossip, when you're talking about that person in your life and you're like, man, you know how messed up their life is right now? Do you, you know all that stuff that's going on in their life? You know what else you can do after those words come out of your mouth? <laughs> Press the pause button and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to ask God to fix that situation in their life. It's really easy to talk about the things that are going on in other people's living rooms and kitchens. It's another thing to stop and recognize that there is actually somebody who can fix that. And it's your, your little words don't. God's power can. So ask him, hey, I know this person has something going on in their life, their marriage, their work. Father God, please step in and fix that in whatever way you can. And then the last one's Thanksgiving. Praying for thanksgiving. We are thankful in all things is other language that Paul uses, as you remember. Remember, the air conditioning in this house, the ceiling fan on, these beautiful kids, this isn't because of us. It's really easy to get wrapped up and be like, you know, Chad's a hardworking guy. Big, beautiful house, beautiful kids, beautiful wife. Everything is going well. Brand new, beautiful truck. And uh, it's easy to look at yourself and say, look what we've created. It's a little bit harder to step back and say, God has given us this for use of the church. God has given us these things so that we may reach others in the community. Remember, that's the difference between us and those who are not in Christ. They think they're doing it all. We don't give any credit to ourselves. Not that you shouldn't do hard work. So we're called to pray for all men. All right. That word all in here, It's genitive, and it means men, but it's fair to say that it means everyone. We're called to pray for everyone. We've talked about this genitive stuff in Greek before, and sometimes it's it's easy to get around, and when the Bible says men, it can mean everyone, and sometimes when it says men, it just means men. In this case, it kind of means all, right? And look, I, I tried to do you all a favor today, so I did some extra study on the word all, just to make sure that we can understand what all means. I looked it up to see if we could figure it out, but it's right there in the Greek. Uh, It's this adjective, pos, all, all men, the adjective, pos, P-A-S. And it's there, and it it actually means all. (laughs) So there's no way out of this. So when he says pray for all people, it doesn't mean, well, pray for the good-looking people or pray for the, the people you get along with 
or just pray for all conservative Republican Christians, or, <laughs> or, or let's do this. Let's just pray for the people who are all sinners because they need it, and nobody else needs prayer because, man, they really need No, it all means, anybody want to, and all means what? It means everybody. That's it. It means everybody. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for everybody. Um, and e- even in the last chapter that we studied, right, Paul sent men out of the church, and we talked about this, handing them to Satan. His desire is repentance. His desire is a change of heart. His desire is that the Holy Spirit would do a work in their lives, and that is our prayer for them. This includes people who've done us wrong. When you pray for everybody, that includes praying for people who have wronged you, even in the worst of ways. That was a purposeful moment of silence. Hopefully in your head, a face popped up. Because there are people who have been wronged horribly. And we need to remember that the reason that their actions and their words are the way they are is because they are not in Christ. Consider the difference in that person if you realize that if that person was saved, that person was in communion with Christ, they would not have maybe committed those actions or said those words. That is our desire, our heart's desire. And we're going to find out why in a little bit. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is a hard one for me. And I know for some of you guys, like my, you know, as a young guy, you join the military, like you, you kind of get, get filled with a vengeful spirit, which look, the flesh wants you to have a vengeful spirit anyway. And then you go into a line of business where having a vengeful spirit just kind of seems to fit well. And then you move on and you have to retrain yourself to not think that person wronged me. I want to punch them. That person wronged me. I want to come against them. That person said something I disagree with. I'm going to let my tongue fix that. But that's not what we should be doing because that does not correct the situation. You want to let your tongue fix that? Then let the next words that roll off your tongue be, I forgive you and I'm going to pray for you. Ooh. Man, that's difficult. So remember that. This is very hard for me. My flesh loves that. So we have to mortify that. We have to put that to death in our lives. We have to remember that it's praying for people, allowing Christ to do the work is about most important. We are called to pray for everyone. The best of the saints and the worst of the sinners and everybody in between. So then as we move on in this chapter, Paul makes it even worse. Like I told you, I tried to study the word all and fix it for you. Now he wants you to pray for politicians. Okay, look. <laughs> get it i'm with you i quit watching the news like five years ago i mean not even if i walk into an office at work and the news is on i I will just go somewhere else i just can't stand it anymore i'm not sure any of it's true but he wants us to pray for our politicians and our public officials back then he talks about kings and people in authority it's essentially the same so look i made this i actually made this note i put really paul pray for those corrupt morons (laughs) and Probably shouldn't call them morons. I would say, really, Paul, pray for those people who don't have you in their lives and need you to guide them and love them. Yeah, we got to pray for them too. We have to pray for them too. And and, um, I I think we forget that. You guys know this. Even in the, uh, use the word conservative, I don't mean conservative politically, I mean conservative Christians who are people who are orthodox in their faith. It is very easy for us to look at what goes on and how our country and community is run and just complain about it and say how awful they are and forget 
that it's not us that makes a change, even through our vote, although we're required to do that and should do that from our heart, out of our faith, it's Christ who changes hearts. And communities change because of Christ, not because of us. So we need to remember that as we're complaining about that stuff, right? So first, that the Lord call those leaders to Christ, that they would be saved. Then for them to make good decisions, because even as Christians, we don't make good decisions, right? We all know people, you know, you've been in the military long enough, you have high-ranking officers and enlisted people who are believers who make stupid decisions. So politicians make poor decisions, even if they're faithful people. So we need to just pray, one, that they're saved. That's the most important thing, that they make it to heaven. And then two, that they would make decisions based on their Christian faith, right? And this is how, as Paul would say here, that we live in tranquility and godliness and dignity. That's essentially what he wants. I want you to pray for that so that you can live in tranquility, godliness, and dignity. That's the important thing. That's how we get there. We don't get there by beating people over the head with our dogma. We get there by prayerfully asking God to step in and fix things through saving our leaders. And just to clear up how it works, does anybody know who puts leaders into office in the United States of America today? Anybody know? Anybody want to take a stab at this? Come on. No, who put, so who put Joe Biden in office? Who put Joe Biden in office? That was, that was funny. That was, that was good. It was good. I hope the microphone picked that up. That's funny. But yeah, it's, it's God. It is God who does it. And I know we hate to say that because we're like, God, how, why? Why did you do this to us? Well, a couple of things. One, we probably deserved it. Let's get that out of the way. So, um, but listen to this, if you will. I'm going to read this from Daniel 2.21. The Lord writes through Daniel the prophet, he says, and he changes the times and the seasons. It is God who makes the shift in the world. It is God who makes things go to the left and go to the right. It is God who punishes and God who redeems. It is God who comes to anger and it is God who is happy with his people. It's God who changes the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is God who put our current mayor, governor, state reps, and, and, and president, leaders of NATO countries in power. It is God. And we have to remember that when we're standing in the office with our friends, vilifying everything, that it is God who is sovereign over it all. And I like to complain just like the next guy, but it's often good to step back and remember, God, I'm going to be faithful through whatever you are doing today in the way things are set up. Because here's the picture you cannot see. The current president is there for a reason. What the overarching reason is it glorifies him somehow. I don't know how. But if you look back, I'd love for you guys to all to do a study. We talked about Isaiah last week. When God punishes Israel repeatedly and another community came in and crushed Israel, that was God's wrath. When God steps in and crushes that country, at the end of all the little parts in Isaiah, he would say, I'm going to do this so that you know my name. It gives me glory. It shows me that I am sovereign over all of you. It's my wrath that'll fix you, but it also shows you who the Redeemer is. And that's why it all works out that way. So God can come in and say, you've forgotten who I am. And I'm going to do this so that you remember. 
And it's hard for us to remember that, so I'll just point that out. Um, It's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's good that we are prayerful for all of mankind. It's what he has established. It's what he asks of us. It's the, the, the style of life that we should have is be prayerful in all things. We pray for the lowest of the low, the highest of the high. And we can make a reasonable assumption that if we all need God, then we all need prayer. If everybody needs God, then everybody needs prayer. Prayer from us, prayer from our brothers and sisters. We all need to be praying for them. It's good and acceptable to pray for people. It's good and acceptable to pray for their salvation. It's good and acceptable because God, our Savior, desires for all men to be saved and to have knowledge of the truth. Good and acceptable. He has established this as the style of belief and intercession that we have in the church, especially in the corporate church, because this is who Paul is talking to. Timothy, you're going to run the church here in Ephesus. It's good and acceptable that you pray for these things. So, this statement that Paul uh, makes leads to a very important question. Okay, And we're going to ask this question of ourselves. And, and I want to ask you this. If God desires all people to be saved, because there's all again, God desires for all people to be saved. This makes a question in me. And for all to have knowledge of the truth, then why isn't everybody saved? I mean, he's God. Right? If I want you all to have pizza for lunch, I will buy you all pizza for lunch. Doesn't that seem reasonable? If God wants all to be saved, then all will be saved. The answer is hard. It's hard for us. It's not hard for God. Don't get, don't get me wrong. God's got it. This is hard to understand at times, but it forces us to leave the work of salvation to who? <laughs> to, to God. <laughs> it, it's his plan. It's not our plan. And it's for his glory, as we just talked about. It's his plan, it's, and it shows his sovereignty, and it gives him glory. Why are some people not saved? We'll go through. The simple answer is because they're not in Christ. I mean, that's kind of the simple. But the bigger answer is, Because he made it that way. Salvation is left in the hands of a holy and sovereign God. But I'll just expound on this for a second. And I'll give, here's kind of like the theological approach. Okay? So whether you're a Calvinist, if you have questions about that, we can talk about it later. But And your approach is that they're not saved because they were not predetermined to be saved. Right? Or you take a more Arminian approach. And you say that they did not ask God for salvation. So two ends of the spectrum. Or you take the kind of provisionist approach or Molinist approach. And you would say that God offered them salvation, but they denied the faith. It still comes out to the work of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter where your theology stands. And people get really heated about that argument. I mean, it is like, it's unholy how bad that argument gets at times. But... All of them come down to this. Whether God predetermined them to be saved or somebody asked to be saved matters not. God still is the one who saves. It is Jesus Christ's work on the cross that saves. So that's why I don't understand it because I don't know his nature well enough because I'm not him. And as we grow in sanctification, if we get closer to that, but I will never quite understand it. Why save me and not that person? Why do they continue to turn away from the truth every day, even though I've expressed it to them and they see it, or maybe they grew up in the church and they turn it? Why? I don't know. I I don't know. Did God not predetermine them to salvation? Yeah, I guess. Did they just deny him? Yeah, I guess. But I, I can't figure it out. 
But just know this, it glorifies God in some way that some are saved and some are not. So there's two kind of theological schools of thought on this. And these can be your big theological words for the week, okay? These will be your two big, your two big words. Monergism and synergism are the big theological words here, okay? Uh, monergism basically says that salvation is the work of Christ alone. Now, we went through Ephesians together. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You can go to 8, 9, and 10 if you want. But remember that when we looked at that, it is, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and not of our works that no man shall boast. So that's monergism. We are saved through his grace only, no works of our own. And then synergism says that God and man work together for salvation. Now, I, the overwhelming biblical evidence says that monergism is the truth. There's no way for you to work. If you took any part in your salvation, it would not be good. And I actually like this quote. Uh, if any of you have ever read Jonathan Edwards, um, I would suggest picking up a book of his or Googling him and looking at his quote. Jonathan Edwards early 18th century um, uh, preacher, missionary, um, huge missionary up in Massachusetts to the natives at the time. I mean, this guy was brilliant. And uh, he had this quote, and I love this. It says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Yeah. I'll just say that again so you get it. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So, hey, when you're patting yourself on the back, telling yourself how good you did this week, just remember everything you did is pretty much just leads to you needing Christ even more because of how bad you are, okay? I know it doesn't seem like good news, but trust me, it is because that means salvation's still in his hands and not in ours because we would surely mess it up, right? But one way to remember this is to be reminded that God's grace is sufficient for everybody, but it's efficient only for the elect. It's efficient for only the people who are in him, right? So essentially it's good enough and powerful enough for everybody, but it's only effective to those that are in him. Does that make sense? So he could save everybody if he wanted, but he only, it's only effective for those who are in him. 2 Peter 3.9 states this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any soul shall perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay? So this is, I love this because it's, it kind of shows this long-suffering God who's like, I built you in the womb, you came out, I'm going to give you enough evidence to see me throughout your entire life because I don't want you to die. But I'm going to give you that time. And then some just won't go. Some will just deny. Some will never find the truth. Not that he's not there for them. Not that he hasn't presented himself. Not that they haven't heard the gospel. I mean, creation itself shows people God. And some people will just say no. Right? But remember back to the previous chapter. When we went over the previous chapter... Who is the greatest sinner of all? Does anybody remember who's the, who's the worst sinner to ever exist? Paul. Paul. I mean, I, I, we forget this when we read through the Bible, that Paul does not say anything about any other sinner. And like, look, it's been 2,000 years. You remember 70-something years ago, we had a guy who existed named Hitler. 
If Paul and his, Hitler existed at the same time, Paul would say, I'm the worst sinner. Because Paul existed in a time where it was pretty brutal. Paul says he's the worst sinner. And I, I think we can make the leap that he was for sure because he wasn't just killing people because he was better racially or, or ideologically. He was killing people because they were Christian. He was targeting believers and he was a Jew. So he was essentially brought up in the Jewish faith knowing who God the Father was and then looking him in the face and saying, you're wrong, I'm right, I'm going to go kill those people who are following your son. This is nuts. The implications are crazy. He says he's the greatest sinner of all. He persecuted Christians. He oversaw the stoning of Stephen. And remember, we talked about this. He was going into homes and pulling out women and children and throwing them in jail for loving Jesus. He's the worst of all sinners. Paul, the greatest evangelist that ever lived. Paul, who Jesus Christ uses as an example to show mercy and grace and long-suffering of the Lord. Remember, we talked about that last week. Like Paul says why God used him. He's like, he used me to show you how good his grace is. If he can pull me out of that, he can pull anybody out of it. So, we should be praying for people that they are saved. Because if, if God can save Paul, he can save you. He can save that person you work with. He can save that political leader. He can save anybody. And Paul reminds us of this great gospel truth here in verse 5 and 6. So if you're not there, we're at verse 5 and 6 in the text. And this is really the essential part of this message, I believe. And it's the reason that we pray for all people. People have no other way out of their sin except for the grace offered by Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no other way to the Father but through him. There's no other way to be saved but through him. There's no other dogma, no other religion, no ideology, no politics. There's no other way to the end. You can't stress this enough when you share the gospel with people. But I'm a good person. Why would God punish No, you're not a good person. We're all not good people. There's no other way. There's some amazing truths in this simple passage. First, there's one God. This is what he says, there's one God. Listen to Isaiah in 44, 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other God besides God the Father, period. There is no other way to be with the Father. There's no reincarnation. There's no Valhalla for warriors. There's no enlightenment in other religion. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father Except through me. There's one mediator, he says in this text. There's no reason to pray to anybody else. This could be sensitive towards people, but there's not a manly appointed saint that you can pray to that can go to God for your sins. You can't go to Mary, the mother of Jesus. She can't pray for your sins. There's not an apostle who has already crossed the veil and is in the presence of the Lord that can pray for your sins. You have the mediator, Jesus Christ. You pray for him, for your sins. Jesus Christ will petition with the Father for your sinfulness. Jesus Christ gave himself for all. And it is not a call to universalism. Just to be clear, it's exclaiming that he gave himself, himself. He's the propitiation. He gave himself as a ransom to all people who are in him. To those who have been saved, he is the 
ransom. He's the substitutionary atonement. He took the sin on himself. He took God's wrath on himself. Um, he pays the price for sin and there's no other payment. We've talked about this before and I want to take five seconds to cover it one more time. Remember, when you are at enmity with God, you are not in Christ, and you are saved, it is true that he takes away your sin. And in, in the contemporary church, we kind of have this misnomer that he's like, look, you don't have to pay for your sins anymore. Like, just for a second, stop thinking about it that way. Because you're not just, it, it, it's not that just your sin is taken away. It's that when you were to die, if you were to die in sin, you would have to bear the weight of God's hate, God's wrath. You cannot bear it. It would bury you in eternity. Christ is the only creature ever because he is God incarnate to be able to bear the weight of God's wrath. That's what he bore on the cross, not just your sin, but with his arms outstretched, bore the weight of the Father's wrath on himself because you cannot. So it's, I think it's, it's very light to say, well, he took away my sin. Yeah, he also bore the Father's hate in a way that you could not. It's so much heavier than we give it credit for. Moving along into verse 7, Paul's expressing that this is the reason that he's appointed. He's appointed as a preacher and apostle to reach people who are lost. This is why he's here, he's saying, to reach the Gentiles. Paul was not called just to go around on a mission trip. You look, if you have one of those Bibles, get all Paul's mission trip. Paul's not on a mission trip building shacks for people in some city and like hanging out at the beach um, and, and we're going to sing songs with people and make them feel good about Jesus and then we're going to leave. No, this isn't a mission trip. He's telling believers, he's not just telling believers what a good job they're doing in every city he's going to. He's called to teach in faith and truth. It starts with prayer, especially prayer in the church. He is bringing them the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-believers. This call that churches, the body of believers like us in here, we come together to pray for the lost, not just to edify ourselves, not just to glorify God, but corporately pray together that people in our community are saved. Pray for our needs, pray for our leaders, petitioning our mighty God to do work that only he can do. We can do that work in the community. Life Care Pregnancy Center, we will reach to, we will give money to, we will give diapers and stuff. That's good. That is good work and we are called to do that good work. But only God can change people's hearts and we need to pray for that. And while we pray as a church, Paul says to lift up holy hands. So we'll lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension, which is essentially, when you lift your hands and pray, God, I want this for my community, please, I am begging you. He's saying, don't lift up your hands with any doubt that he can do the work. And that's tough for me because if you know some of the people around you, you're like, I'm going to ask God to save you, but I'm pretty sure you're too far gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, that person's a real piece of work and I'm not sure God can do it in their lives. God's saying, don't pray like that. He's like, lift up your holy hands. I've set you aside as saints, as hagios. Lift up your hands and know me. Know that I am the one that can do the work to save these people. Submit to that. If your community is a mess and you need to pray for its leaders, lift up your hands and beg me to change them. 
If your neighbor's marriage is a mess, lift up your hands as a church and beg me to work in their marriage. And expect me to do it because I have the power, he says. That's what he's telling them. He has the power to change hearts. He has the power to redeem. He has the power to change hearts, which means marriages. You change hearts, you change marriages. If your marriage is messy, look at yourself and ask, what is hard in my heart that is preventing me from forgiving my spouse? What is hard in my heart that is preventing me from being sensitive to their needs, serving them, submitting to them, giving it all to them? If you have a piece of hardness in your heart, you need to go to God and pray for yourself for that. But when he changes your heart, it changes your marriage. Guess what happens when you change your marriage? It changes your family. Guess what happens when you change your family? It changes your neighborhood. And then what? And then your community. And then what? And then your country. That starts with you. You pray for you. Pray for your heart. And then you pray for your marriage. And when you fix your marriage, you fix your kids, you fix your community. That's where it starts. It doesn't, it doesn't start by Fox News being on in the office and complaining about how bad Joe Biden is. It starts with you. That's how you fix Joe Biden, with you. Because God works in hearts. And then the question is, do we desire a tranquil and quiet life? Godliness and dignity. Because he says here, that's why we pray for that. So is that what you desire in your life? Do you desire, as you will go home on a Sunday afternoon, that the sun is out and the grass is green and everybody's getting along and the kids are running around playing, do you desire a tranquil and quiet life and all godless and godliness and dignity? I would say yes. That's what many of us strive for. We work hard that our kids have, right? We work hard that we are able to give for our kids and we live happily and we laugh and eat pizza after church and we, you know, life is good, kind of, right? The tag, life is good. Do we desire that? I would say Yes then let's follow that command to pray. Because Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, this is how church gets there. We pray for those things. Let's not complain how bad things are this week. Let's come together and pray for a mighty work of Jesus Christ. Right here, one in your heart, in my heart, and that it just pours out into our community and it changes everything. All right, we're going to close this up, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little textual work because I just want to point this out. There's an interesting point to be made in the last uh, passage as we close that up where he says, therefore I want the men in every place to pray. Remember at the beginning I said men and it kind of means everybody. It's a little bit different here in this spot. He uses the word men. We're in many verses it can mean, you know, in the genitive fashion it could kind of mean everybody. We can assume um, that it would cover men and women. In this case, a little different. Commentators use this as the word men. They see it as the word men or those that are leading worship in the church. And this is a call to responsibility and this is always different, difficult for men in the church because they're like, eh, you know, the church is just a church and it'll just run itself. No, Paul is like men pray lifting holy hands. All men. It's a call for this leadership in the church. Men, it's essential that we Men are offering our prayers and petitions and thanksgiving for all in a way that recognizes the truth of the gospel message. And Paul gives this as an instruction for the local church, for the men in the local church. I want you to do this. Remember, I talked about this isn't a, this is how you should run church. This is a command. Men, you will do this in the church. So today as we close, we're going to do this. We're going to lift our hands. And we are going to pray. 
We're going to pray to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that all come to his saving grace. Not just us, not just our kids, all. We're going to pray for everybody that we might see a mighty work done in our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, in our leaders, in our country, and hopefully in the world. And that is how we will pray today. Father God, we come before you today humbly realizing that it's you that has the power to change our families. We come to you today humbly knowing that it's you that can change our hearts as dads and as fathers who lead families, who love and serve our wives, that we would have the knowledge, the wisdom, the sensitivity, the sense of service to care for our wives in a way that our children know that we love you Lord, that our wives would recognize our deep desire for them to be sanctified in you, that we prepare them for heaven, that they would lead and run our families well, Lord, and that our children would see that our love for each other as a husband and a wife is a beautiful picture of redemption of the church in eternity. that our children would be touched by your spirit, Lord, in amazing and miraculous ways, that they would grow in faith with you unwavering, that the world would never pull them away from us or from you, that they would continue to grow in ways that they are an amazing mission to our country, to our community, to our neighborhoods, and to the families around them. And we ask that that spirit of faith and truth pour out of our families into our church and out of our church into our workspaces and out of our workspaces into our community in a way that our community is never the same again, that it recognizes you as sovereign and holy and loving and long-suffering, that you desire no men perish, Father. We are thankful for you today. We are thankful for this church body, for our friends who came a long way to visit. We are thankful for the work that you've done in our lives. We are thankful for the beauty of your creation. And we come before you humbly praying, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do. I beg you, Father, for this. And we ask for this blessing in the name of our precious and holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.